So Natalie, welcome to Time Team. Thanks Very for having nice me. Of you to have this chat with us. Um, I um, have your lovely book, Pandora's Jar. Could you just begin by just telling us how you got into the Pandora's Jar line of thought process and and basically a little bit about yourself and what you do at the moment? Well, it's sort of a positive and a negative way, I suppose, um, because I had written two novels, is that true? Three novels in succession, Amber Fury, um, and then two, two set in the ancient world, The Children of Jocasta and A Thousand Ships. And uh, Ships especially was quite a psychologically ruinous book to write. <laughs> I mean, they both were in that way. Um, Jocasta gets more and more um, claustrophobic as it goes on. The, the set li literally becomes smaller. The available space becomes smaller. So that was quite stressful. To, but I could deal with the stress by just going out for a run. Um, but Ships, Ships was a real piece of work. <laughs> so there are so many women in it who um, experience so many um, very difficult things uh, that by the time I'd finished, I could not write another novel. I could barely, you know, get off the sofa, to be honest. I was so, I, I, you know, it was, it was a very destructive book to write, even though it, it, that seems like a weird thing to say now, because then, of course, it came out and pulverized everything I'd ever done before it. And, um, and so I really, I didn't want to not write a book and I didn't want to leave Greek myth, but I couldn't write another novel. And I thought, what I need to do is is come at this come at these women's stories from the outside, looking in analytically, and not from the inside, imagining what it is like to be a trafficked woman who and then and then and then. <laughs> yes, that's right. So Pandora was like my she's my recovery, she's my rehab um, from injury, uh, I guess. Uh, and so yeah, I I'd been making radio programs about classics for quite a long time. I think there's my my Radio Four series, Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics started in 2014 I'm guessing to be honest with you it might be 13 um and so I'd been writing and talking about classics with audiences for a really long time I do a, a sort of almost continuous live tour obviously this past 12 months has been a little harder um but I wanted really wanted to be able to carry on talking to audiences about Greek myth and and Pandora was the book to do it so yeah I um I think that the, the, the interesting thing for me, when I've talked to a few classicists, I was talking to Michael, um, Michael Scott. He's lovely. Uh, and he's a he, lovely is, he is lovely. He's yes. lovely. Yeah. And, uh, but he's I, on our good list. He's on our good list. I'm professor of classics at Warwick now. Yes, he is. Uh, which, which is rather lovely. It's how lovely to talk to a professor of classics. Well, they're lucky to have him, in my view, but there yeah. you go. I said to him the same thing as I'm going to say to you, which is that um, when when you think of the classics and you talk to people and you talk about Greece and Rome and you're thinking of, usually I'm thinking of nice warm beaches, beautiful Greek islands, Roman food, and has, has a wonderful context to it. Um, how does it feel when you turn back to Britain and look around Britain at archaeological sites where some of the remnants of that classicism, we're looking at a big villa later this year, that in one sense can be said to be a British reproduction of the Italian villa life. We've got mosaics, painted plaster. We've got coins with emperors on. How does it feel as a classicist to look back into Britain and look at an archaeological site where those objects reflect the bigger classical subject. It feels magical. 
really magical. I know that it, you have to be kind of careful as a classicist not to become too, I'm not sure what the word is really, parochial, provincial. It's like Roman Britain definitely isn't more important to the Romans than, say, Roman Gaul <laughs> Roman Spain <laughs> or Roman Italy or Roman Greece. Or, well, anyway, um, yeah, we are an outpost. And it is. I think there's something fantastic about looking at yourself that way. We definitely have in Britain a hangover from having been an imperial power. We still think of ourselves, I think. It's kind of weird for me because I'm partly Belgian. So um, I, I have two really dubious empires <laughs> behind me. Hi, everyone. Sorry about everything. Um, but I think we do tend to think of ourselves as still being quite important. And to be fair, lots of the world allows us to continue to believe that. Um, and yet for the Romans, we're an outpost and we're not even a popular outpost because the weather's awful. And so it is brilliant, I think, being able to look at where you are, where you grew up, from from an the opposite perspective you're not the center of the world as all children believe themselves to be um but but you're the outpost of the world <laughs> it's like, oh okay fair enough um and so i always feel incredibly i love the sense of um that that materiality of um of going to ancient sites so i gigged at vindolanda which was properly one of the happy days and in perfect blue skies like it is for you now blue skies weather and it was just really, really wonderful, really thrilling. Um, I should say, just just out of interest, I mean, I don't come from any sort of classical background. I had a shot at Latin at school. but That's fine. Get, You'll help out if we're shorthanded. That's all we need. Didn't get very far. Um, but I was, I was kind of amazed about the number of Roman emperors who actually came to Britain. Um, I think there was four or five some of the very important ones, like Constantine. Of course, we had a visit from Julius. Claudius. Who doesn't Claudius. want Claudius with his elephants? Imagine being a Roman Briton, um, just becoming a Roman Briton, having previously been a regular Briton, and then seeing an elephant. For the, what's the biggest thing you've seen before? Like a goat? <laughs> a horse? You're like, what the hell is that? So, yeah, I love looking at it that way around. I'm sure you've read uh, Charlotte Higgins' brilliant book, Under Another Sky, about Roman Britain. It's just the most, if, you're, if your viewers haven't or listeners haven't read it, I can't recommend it enough. It's the most lovely, brilliant, scholarly, but not at all dry, fun um, road trip around Roman Britain sites, often in a camper van with her partner, Matthew. It's just a joy. And it is that at some point, it, it, that's the, the dream for all classicists, I think, you know, walking Hadrian's Wall coast to coast. You know, I properly have, have in my diary, I'm like, when, when we're allowed to go and do this again, then where am I going to go? I'm like, will it be Fishbourne? <laughs> will it be Sirens? Can I come to your dig? Is that the rules? If, I've, if you're well, on this programme, I, 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 I think sites? we'd love, love to have you at our yes. dig. Of course, it is going to involve at some point you getting in the trench. Uh, and um, doing a little bit of scraping and shoveling. That's fine. I, I can kickbox, mate. I'm ready for it. I, I have a perverse delight in getting classicists into trenches. There's something I I, I think it's slightly masochistic. That's so World War One of you. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, it would be very nice to see you there. The issue that we often face in archaeology is that question of have we got an actual Roman? Or have we got a Romano-British citizen who's adapting his world and taking right. on? What do you think is in the mental process? I And this plays slightly into the, the issues of masculine, feminine, but the Roman Empire 
has got all this stuff, which is roads, it's writing, it's, it's, it's heated floors. There's a lot of good stuff that one would want. Do you think it was surely the, the practical appeal of Rome, or was there something more that attracted large number of Brits to sign up? I think it's a combination of, um, I guess, carrot and stick, if that isn't too anachronistic. Um, I guess sticks very much not not an anachronism. So the Roman, I mean, you can try fighting the Romans, but generally, it's not a great idea. They are an astonishing war machine, and you know we're not quite at that stage at that point. You know, again, it, you have to imagine what it was like for people who were used to essentially, I guess, intertribal scraps at, at worst. Suddenly, suddenly see this whole military apparatus not just the numbers of men not just the uh, you know sharpness of their spears and their swords and the sturdiness of their you know uh, armor and so on not just that but the the sheer terrifying bureaucratic organization of it you're it's like trying to fight a tide i think trying to there are things not to like about the film gladiator but that opening chunk where he says you know on my signal unleash hell and you you suddenly see what it must have been and it's that thing where i know lots of classicists who had the same experience who just sat in the cinema and went but they had virgil they can't be this mean it's like you know they're mean you know they are you've read tastus you've read livy you don't get to then be all naive about what war looks like but you can be you know you can you can be distracted by the beauty of the description of war in the Aeneid, for example, and you can forget that bit in in Livy. Is it Livy twenty one? I think or twenty two, where he talks about the the dead at Cannae, who are so even though they've they've held off Hannibal for just long enough, they're so badly injured they they kill themselves on the battlefield so that they don't have to die of their injuries. I mean, it's just horrific. And you think that's what it was like fighting this kind of combat. Let's not romanticize it just because there aren't guns doesn't mean it was fun. And you have to think in those terms. But at the same time, when the Romans turn up, they bring olive oil, they bring lovely things to eat and drink. Are you genuinely, as a Roman, you know, tribal leader, going to go, oh, yeah, no, thank, no, none of that for me, please. <laughs> I'll have more turnips, thanks for asking. I don't think so. I think we should put in a brief word here for Boudicca, mm. who clearly didn't fall for the whole thing, thanks to the dreadful treatment of her daughters by the right. Roman army, um, and nearly did it. I mean, she, she gave nearly, it a really good go. Nearly yeah. got in the face of all that. Um, she, that was quite an event, and and that was that. Is that the first time that the Roman army's effectively been severely stopped by a woman warrior? Yes, I think so. I mean, women are, are you know heroically under described in all periods of history, up to and including actual now. So it's hard to say for sure. But yeah, I think, I mean, there's Cartamandua, isn't there, who's, um, who marries, she's married to a king and then she leaves him. It's one of the very, very few kind of inverse Helen of Troy narratives. She leaves her husband, who is a king, for an armour carrier who is therefore much lower status. And, and we must assume, I think, therefore a massive hottie, because otherwise it just doesn't make sense. Um, and then I think the Romans support her against her husband, um, and then eventually her husband sort of waits it out in time-honoured, furious X fashion. He's in the pub car park for like 10 years. And then he waits until Britain is destabilised enough, I think, by, by Boudicca, et cetera, 
Um, and that's when he makes his, his, but of course, as always, we find out a little bit about Cartamandua and then her story just disappears because Roman sources like Tacitus, you know, he's, he's, he's quite interested in Britain because his father-in-law was here, um, uh, Agricola. So he's more interested than he might be, but he's not very interested in minor British women, you know, putting up some resistance. So yeah, Cartamandua, I guess, is, is, she's my sneaky favourite, I think, even more than Boudicca, but yeah, no, they're, they're both quite great. And when you see, uh, I, I mean, I, you know, when, when Caesar talks about Gaul and the campaign in Britain, you regularly see a line that goes like, um, we wanted to know the disposition of the soldiers. So we had the prisoners brought in and questioned them. And you rather think that none of that was probably a gentle process. I wouldn't have thought, no. And the Romans he, have lots of virtues, but value on life and, and bodily sanctity, yes. pretty well none of them, I'm afraid. And when, he, when he's faced by a problem, he just says, I send such and such a legion, and that sorted that out. So you do feel that, that fundamentally part of Britain is that west of the Foss Way, we were kind of a frontier society. Yeah. Um, and so the power of that, you're, you're absolutely right about that, that being dominated. But the interesting thing is that one of the places we're looking at is in between the Foss Way, it's in Oxfordshire, mm. and there are no military camps, and there's an 80-metre-long villa which has got mosaics, and we think it may have been an official who worked in Sirencester and came back home. And when we look at a site like that, I often think if I, if I was talking to a classicist, I would think, what would, what would you be able to tell us about that person? What objects would you want us to find that would enable you to make a portrait of a, a, a figure from the late fourth century Britain? I suppose the first thing you want is anything with a date on, isn't it? So you can you know, try and, and stabilise it a little bit in time. You can have a beginning point at the very least, even if you can't get an end point once you have things like coins. And that makes a huge difference. Um, so I think that's probably the first thing that you'd look for. And then you want to know, I suppose, what kind of, um, it's something that we don't think about very much, I don't think, but what kind of taste a person has in the ancient past is something that we tend to just say, oh, um, you know, the Romans liked this or Pompeians liked this. And it, of, of course, they didn't any more than you could say of us now. British people like this. Sure, some of us do, but absolute definite. Do we all? Probably not. And so, you, of course, what we would really want to do is say, well, we can we can really successfully say people in Roman Britain used this. But, you know, the things that people maybe choose to buy or the things that people or the way people bought things decorated in a certain way that bit fascinates me because that shows you something of them as an individual as opposed to just what they can afford. It's like, what did they choose? Um, so I think that's probably, you know, coinage doesn't tell us anything for that because everyone needs coins. Um, but, but what they choose to spend those coins on, that is, I think that's why I'm so, I'm, I realize this is the oldest news in the world to you, literally and metaphorically probably. Um, but it's why I love those De Ficciones, the cursed tablets in Bath. Um, because I think they tell you so much about a person because they're all about desire. You know, it's like somebody has had their cloak stolen or their wife's run off with somebody. And this is the message they write to the gods saying, you know, pay him back. You know, that, that guy who stole my my 
cloak, you know, make him come out in boils and, you know, a pig eat him and this and that. And the fact that it just breaks my heart, the fact that, you know, sometimes you write them backwards because it's more magical or, and that they're folded up because they're such soft lead to make them extra secret. I, that those, those, those curse tablets to me are, each one of them is the expression of a, such a deep desire, often a negative desire, I don't deny it. But those feelings are so profound that I, they sing through two millennia with no problem at all to me. Yeah, I know exactly what it feels like to be like, no, it's not fair. <laughs> I also like talking about slightly less poetic notions, the fact that we find these tablets um, and on Time Team, we found a few stone tablets, which I'll tell you about in a moment. But I was thinking of the Vindolander tablets, where mm. this ancient cache of material, and you, you're rather hoping it might have Ovid or something like that written on it, but it has send more socks. Yes, and, and because it was cold. You can't blame them. Imagine being a, you know, that that wonderful tombstone that that, that we have from South Shields, where um it's is it Baratis and he's Syrian and his wife is British and he's moved here. Imagine having grown up in Syria and then finding yourself, I love you, South Shields, in South Shields. You would notice a temperature mismatch. You might be thinking, what lovely scenery, what a delightful accent. I'm very much enjoying, you know, the excellent seabirds nearby, etc. But you would also be thinking, please may I have a jumper? You just would. That is only fair. Um, one of the things we have also, the strangeness of this late fourth century is that the military are being withdrawn gradually. And yet these characters in these big villas in the Cotswolds, um, and we've, we've dug a few of those, and the one we're looking at later this year, seem to have a little sort of golden age of spending money on their villa. You get gardens and things like that. And linked to this is, is one of the characters from your book, um, Eurydice, uh, not the Greek pronunciation, but as near as I can get. And very near to where we are is a, is a villa a mosaic at Woodchester. And it is an Orpheus orf, mosaic. How interesting. And it's massive. It's it's one of the biggest mosaics in Northern Europe. It, it was revealed and then reburied to help save it. And a couple of people recreated a complete reproduction. But I was thinking of exactly that when you talked about this role of uh, and, 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 and meaning for the person. So that in Britain, a, a mosaic like that, the central character is Orpheus. Mm-hmm. And Orpheus is like some—he's like some sort of Greek Jimi Hendrix. You know, he can play that lute so well. The yeah. birds are charmed, the animals are charmed. The dead and, stop in their tracks. I mean. And and Eurydice, bless her, suffers a sort of rather terrible fate. And I yes. think you were sort of getting at that in, in in that chapter in your book. Yeah, I have only limited patience with Orpheus, as you're um, tactfully implying. Um, because I find their story, and it's a very interesting one, because he's late into Greek myth. You, you think of him as being early because he is, you know, the he, he feels like he should be. It's very elemental, you know, this, the connection with the natural world, etc. But he's a he's a relatively late addition, and we don't get mention of him and his the story of him going down to the underworld to try and regain Eurydice after she dies is incredibly late. The first reference that we have to it in literature is the 5th century BCE in the Euripides play Alcestis. And he doesn't name 
Eurydice. Her name doesn't appear until I think the second century BCE. So it, it, it's just not well attested before then. There's not a mention in Hesiod. There's not, you know, it, it's surprising that we don't I have think more. You could just give us a quick sketch. Of sure. That because it's so, there's about five Orpheus mosaics in Britain. It was like yeah. a top tune for mosaics. He's really, really popular. So um, Eurydice is, in one version, Ovid's version, um, she is on her wedding day, their wedding day, she is uh, Orpheus betrothed. Um, in Virgil's version, which is in the Georgics, uh, she is, it's not their wedding day, but she is pursued nonetheless by a man named Aristeus. Um, and he intends to rape her. Um, the, the Latin is quite clear. It's almost always euphemized in translations as, you know, attack or seize is usually what people go for. Uh, but it is rape. Um, and she runs away from him and the grass oh, it kills me now. She is Moritura Puella. Uh, she is the girl about to die. And the grass is long by the river. And so she doesn't see a snake hiding in the grass. She's running headlong uh, from Aristeus um, and the snake bites her ankle. Um, and she dies, obviously much before her time. She's a very young woman. Um, and Orpheus is so devastated by her loss that he goes to the underworld as a living man. Um, and he plays his lyre. And uh, in some versions, Persephone, queen of the dead, in some versions, Hades, king of the dead, one or other or both of them are so moved that they agree that he may take Eurydice back with him to uh, live again. Um, but this proviso is is put on them that he can't look back as he returns to the to the surface. Um, and he almost manages it. And this is the bit that we love, but it's always really briefly described in ancient sources. They're all about the playing and the going down. The, the catabasis, the coming back up is not so impressive to them. He comes back up um, and at the very last minute he turns and... Uh, and sees Eurydice, and that, of course, has broken the contract, and she disappears into the breezes, and her last words to him in Virgil are that, you know, what madness has possessed you, and, and so she dies twice. Um, and it's it's not surprising, I think, that, that the myth of Orpheus is where our focus is, because, um, of course, composers and musicians have always wanted to recreate the story of, you know, this man whose music is so beautiful that the, the dead flock to hear him in Ovid's version in the Metamorphoses they flock to hear him play and it's like god that is an incredible that is an incredible moment to describe um but there's a wonderful version of the story um told by Caroline Duffy um where Eurydice has just had it up to here with Orpheus and basically she's just delighted to be dead because he's always going on about his poems and his songs um, and then he comes looking for her she's like oh not here as well <laughs> she can't stand it he's playing the harp again the yeah, harp again exactly it's in the collection the world's wife so if you don't know it I urge you to track it down it's incredibly clever and funny like much of her poetry of course is it's interesting that the you know, is it possible or is it going too far to suggest that the presence of that sort of mosaic for the owner of the villa is doing quite a lot of things? I suppose it's signaling that he is a cultured person. Yes. Um, it's, it's also giving him a link with things like banqueting and food and sensual pleasures. I think, do, do you think having that on your carpet, does that psychologically 
give us an idea of the, something that was going on in the head of the person who owned it? So it? much. Yes, I think so. I mean, I suppose we have to assume that some people might have just moved into a pre-existing villa and not had any connection. But essentially, you have to assume that for the person who at least paid to have the mosaic laid, they're trying to do, yes, a bunch. It's doing a lot of heavy lifting, uh, as archaeologists must be used to. Um, so it's it's connecting them with absolutely this cultured existence. This is somebody who likes music. It's somebody who likes art. You can tell they like art. They've got a mosaic. You can tell they like music. The mosaic is of Orpheus. Um, but it's also like a connective. It's the connective tissue to, to Rome and to Greece before Rome. You know, the Romans are the great um, magpies in lots of ways of of. Uh, Greek myth Ovid is the perfect to illustrate it. You know, he's always looking at Greek myths and reworking them for a Roman audience. Um, and this is the the ultimate story of that because we don't we don't really have a version from before a Roman writer from the end of the first century BCE when Virgil and then rel- relatively soon afterwards uh, Ovid take it on. So you're connecting yourself back to. Um, the beginning of the Roman Empire, because that's what Virgil and Ovid must say to a to a a reader or a viewer who can who can read the language that the mosaic is is speaking. Um, you're connecting yourself to Rome and before it to Greece. You're showing yourself to be cultured and cultivated. You're you're saying an awful lot with that mosaic for certain. And if you have something like a mosaic like that. Um... How do you think it might feel if we, if you came to an archaeological site, if you came to the villa site we're doing a dig on, and we're actually able to uncover a mosaic while you were there as a classicist? What is going on at that moment for you? I mean, I've got bad news for you, and I think it's that I would cry. I, you know, at the crucial moments in my life, I stop being academic and become, you know, the the novelist instead of the classicist I suppose I think it would just it would make me cry I, I will cry you know that bit in the Capitoline Museum in Rome where there's a corridor and it's really kind of dingy up on the first floor and you walk along and then at the end of it, it there, there just isn't any wall there isn't any window or anything there's just an open air space that looks out over the Roman Forum I can't go there without crying every single time <gasps> I can't look at the Parthenon without crying. It's like I spent my whole life. I started Latin when I was 11 and Greek when I was 14. This has been my whole life. I I can't have that experience of being in the space where they were without it having a a sort of kaleidoscopic effect, like all time disappears suddenly. And I kind of, it it becomes very emotional. So I would have an extremely unacademic reaction, which I know is inappropriate. That sounds absolutely fine. I'll make a note that we should have boxes. Big cry, baby. Yeah. But 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 I think that would be great. I once cried at a picture of a sad horse on the news, so I can't be trusted. Just just FYI, I'm a massive cryer. It's very emotional. I wouldn't describe it as a scientific process at all. Um, I wanted to just go back to Orpheus and Eurydice because. It seems to have touched a modern nerve. There have been films, there have been operas, of course, um, but there's been modern film versions, which I think you refer to in your book. What do you think it is about that that gets to the modern psyche? Why are we so interested in a Greek-Roman myth? Well, I have to say, I think this is one of those um, examples where you can really see a, a gender disparity in who gets to create things, because generally, historically, films have been made by men and operas have been composed by men and, you know, music gets to be written by and so on and so on. And Orpheus is the ultimate story of that. He is the ultimate artist. 
you know, he can make the dead stop in their tracks. The, the, it's, it's a real, you can see why everyone wants to be able to recreate that. Plus, of course, it is the ultimate metaphor for the destructive power of the male gaze, if you want to think about it in terms of art. He literally kills her <laughs> for a second time by looking at her. That's all it takes. So, it, you know, it, it is an intense artistic metaphor for male creativity. And I think that is probably why it's been so potent and why films like Black Orpheus, the French Brazilian film, uh, which won, I mean, it's incredibly unusually won the Palme d'Or at Cannes and also the Academy Award at the Oscars. Like, oh my God, that's pretty unusual. But, you know, it's, and, and that's a fascinating version of the Orpheus myth where again, this idea of creativity undergoes a whole different it, it, it's like the, the gendered nature of it doesn't change, but it's democratized because everywhere it's carnival time in Brazil where when the film is set and um, everybody, everybody plays, you know, music is not the, it's not only the preserve of this one creative individual, but you know, the guys playing it on the trolley, the, the tram as they're traveling around the city, you know, people are playing as they're trying on dresses for the carnival tomorrow. Everyone's playing for the carnival. So it's both, there's a marching band, right? At the start of the movie. So music represents both order and disorder in the film. It's completely democratic. It's like, oh my God, this is what it looks like when everybody gets to make music. That's incredible. So I think it just has this huge creative potency to it. And only really recently, um, H.D., the American uh, poet in the 1920s, I think, but I'm not as good at modern history. Um, obviously, Caroline Duffy, but also Anais uh, Mitchell wrote a musical called Hades Town, which played at the National Theatre in London uh, before it transferred back to New York. Um, and that that makes it a much more sort of even version of the story where it's like this man is trying to create this perfect melody. Um but the woman who loves him and who he loves is is trying to eat. You know, it's set and it, it's never described as the Great Depression, but it, but it essentially is. I was um, very pleased uh, to find a note about a sherd of Roman pottery that had got a Greek name on it. Um, and I don't know whether much work has been done, it may have been, on the actual presence of Greeks, I think, in Roman villas were often employed as secretaries or scribes. Yes. They were known for this. And it's a, I often think of what a strange thing to think about. Greeks in Britain. Romans seem pretty different. That's odd enough, but we've got over it. We're here now. <laughs> the Greek. What on earth is he doing, you know, here? And, and, and that thread of the Romans wanting a Greek presence because that's what they have in Italy. Absolutely. And again, it's that the Romans have quite a conflicted relationship, I think, with the Greeks um, in which they they kind of crave them. You know, they're, they're always consuming their art and trying to recreate it and remake it in their own image. Um, and at the same time, obviously, they have this kind of conqueror's contempt. So, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. Greek slaves or freedmen um, to Romans uh, would you would often be I don't know if usually is overstretching it would often be um, doing jobs which I suppose we would see as less stressful less traumatic less, certainly less physically demanding so yes um, I mean the most famous example I suppose thanks to Robert Harris is uh, Tiro Cicero's um, amanuensis I guess um, so the reading and the writing, the multiple languages, these are all things you can sort of expect from a Greek if you were to read, for example, Juvenal, uh, who was furious about the Greeks at all times. The Greeks in Rome, the Greeks anywhere, couldn't be crosser. Um, 
But, you know, he despises. There's one bit in Satire 6 where he's being scornful about women. I know it's a shock. Um, and he says, you know, they're always, you know, issuing these sort of Greek phrases like, you know, my life, my soul. <laughs> you can imagine these melodramatic Roman girls. Okay, well, let me say a bit of Greek. Hold on. Just like we might have said a bit of French when we were learning it for GCSE. <laughs> so it is, you know, it's the sign of being cultured um, is knowing Greek. And the Greeks are definitely seen as being cultured by the Romans. But of course, it comes with this tension because there is always tension where there is empire and slavery, of course. Um, I've been lucky enough to spend a bit of time on on uh, uh, the beautiful Greek island of Ithaca, and and you can't wander around it without having uh, visions of of what might have been there in the past. And there have been some wonderful um, uh, archaeologists um, who've worked on that island. Um, some of them British, and um, I think there's always been a desire to find places where that spirit still lives and hopefully match the archaeology up with it. And, and I, I can't let you go without having a chat about Penelope, who also appears in your book. I love her. And one of the things about dear Penelope is, uh, bless her, I, 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 that could have been such a riotous movie, really. She's there trying to keep the suitors at bay endlessly making a piece of linen cloth and undoing it at the end of the day because she said she'll only marry them and waiting for Odysseus who promptly turns up in disguise and what I like about Penelope is this isn't a very rich queen I think the landscape Mm. of Odysseus is a relatively poor Greek island it's not like the great golden palaces and Odysseus builds his house in a tree. How did you feel about uh, how how myth and legend has dealt with Penelope's story? Penelope is a really interesting one because she is always presented to us as the archetypal good wife. Um, And I'm using the world's heaviest inverted commas there because good wife in this instance is essentially being defined almost invariably by men who don't know her. So Agamemnon from the underworld in uh, book 24 of the Odyssey says, oh, you know, she was at what, how lucky you were, son of Laertes, he means Odysseus, um, that the noble Penelope waited for, you know, the gods will create a poem for her. Not like my wife, not like Clytemnestra, because she had an affair and here I am dead in the underworld, having been killed by her lover. And it's like, did this have anything to do with Penelope, the virtues that you're ascribing to her? Or is it just a way to be furious again about your wife, Clytemnestra? little bit the latter but also you know he definitely doesn't know her they met maybe once or twice more than 20 years ago because he was away for 10 years of the war and then killed when he got home spoiler and then it takes Odysseus another 10 years to get home so that this isn't a man who knows her and in the end it's like well what do you mean when you say she's the perfect wife what you mean is she brings up Odysseus's son on her own she's you know she's a good single mother but is that what it means to be a perfect wife? Actually, in, in Homer, what, what we keep being told about them is that they are, they have, um, they're homophrosone. Um, so they have this same, the same mindedness um, uh, that both Odysseus and Penelope are tricksy. You know, they're, they're not naturally um, truth telling, let's say. Uh, Penelope, when she describes her, her weaving and unweaving trick, she says, I weave deceit. And then she goes on to explain because it's the only way she can 
stop being forced to, to remarry, which she doesn't want to do because she believes Odysseus is still alive. So she is a very long suffering character um, and she waits yeah, very chastely um, and, and patiently for Odysseus to return home after 20 years, except there are versions of the myth where, in fact, she does not do that, but has a cheerful time with several of the suitors. Uh, there are versions of the myth where Odysseus comes home and kills her because of her infidelity. There are versions where she gives birth to, I think, the god Pan. I mean, that it, it is not at all guaranteed that Penelope is this sort of long-suffering, virtually mute character who just sort of cries a bit at home and waits for her husband to come back. Um, and, and that's the version that we've chosen to prioritise, almost as if that's the version that lots of male poets think would be best for them. Uh, that's the, the interesting thing, of course, the connection with archaeology, of which there are many, is that Schliemann, having mm. trotted around Greece, locating various places and saying, this is the palace of Odysseus, he claimed to have found the grave of Penelope there, um, you know, and promptly called it that and then buzzed off looking for Troy somewhere else. Um, but she was also, um, there's an ambiguity about her character in that she seems to be responsible for the death of the slave women. Um, there's a sort of, there's a sort of clear out of some of the palace servants. And I don't know whether it's Odysseus or Penelope, but it's, it's a fairly dark end to that. It's really, really difficult. Yeah, Odysseus um, tells Telemachus, his son, their son, um, to kill these uh, these women when um, he's returned. And I think it's 12 slave women who have been uh, conspiring, as uh, Odysseus perceives it, with the suitors in uh, his absence. But it's, of course, it's what made Margaret Atwood write the Penelope ad because her version of Penelope um, is absolutely haunted by by this awful treatment of these slave women who have, of course, no capacity to consent or not consent to these suitors because they are slaves. That's literally what being a slave means. You don't have bodily autonomy anymore. And there's also a fantastic um, artwork by Marion Maguire, who's a New Zealand artist, um, which shows Penelope at her uh, loom. She's at the. She's at the. It's a, a fireplace. So she's literally at the hearth of the house. It couldn't be more symbolic. And on the two sides of the fireplace are these hands, the suitor's hands, disembodied, um, reaching, grasping out at her. And above her are the feet of these slave women because they are hanged from the same length of rope. So it is a really bleak ending. And actually, I think it's the bit that people forget. The Odyssey is always seen as being this sort of fun adventure story, um, whereas the Iliad is the sort of you know difficult war narrative. But Odysseus gets back to Ithaca in, is it book 16, I think? It's, and then there's like eight books before the end. And a lot of that is very, very violent. Um, and, and we kind of forget. I think you have to read it now anyway. I don't know how people would have read it then. As if, you know, Odysseus has some kind of PTSD from having survived the, the war and his exploits coming home. But he is his response is extravagantly violent, so much so that his own father remonstrates with him and says, you know, we're going to have to be a bit careful about what we've done. So. It's interesting to think about, which is, you know, the angle I tend to come from, the archaeology on the island is, is um, extraordinary. There was a, a lovely um, British archaeologist called Sylvia Benton, and Sylvia used to go there and sit in cafes and talk to the local Greek farmers about what they discovered. This was in, I think, the 30s. And one told her that he had collapsed into what he thought was a lime kiln. 
and pulled out a piece of metal which he'd melted down. But the piece of metal turned out to be one of 12 um, Libes um, tripods, mm. huge tripods. And more, just about uh, more tripods have been found in this cave, this offering cave on Ithaca, than anywhere else in Greece. I mean, they've found more at Olympia. But these were the things given to athletes when they won a race. Right. And, um, uh, Sylvia, and they're always being doled out in the Iliad, huh? Whenever anyone wins anything. There's your tripod. Yeah, there's your tripod. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> And Sylvia was famous for, she she went in there and there's pictures of her going underneath the stonework and pulling up. And it was a huge cave of offerings. There were pottery jars and all sorts of things. And Sylvia used to do all this work. I sort of imagine in my imagination in a tweed skirt. You know, I certainly hope so. Yes. Very upright and kept her standards. And then she used to swim across the bay, much to the amazement of the Greeks who just didn't, really um, get what was going on, but she loves him. When the earthquake happened in 52-53 in Ithaca, the British destroyer came into the main port and the first person off the boat and down the gangplank was Sylvia. She headed for the museum in Bathy and helped the Greeks to save whatever could be saved from the earthquake. She was a lovely woman, remarkable woman. How wonderful. We need that film, don't we, as a follow-up to The Dig? <laughs> so, uh, lovely to talk to you about all these aspects of, of, of where class, I, I, I like, in my mind, I'm always kind of putting classicism together with objects a little bit. I, I can be a bit sort of artifact reductive. It's good point. for us to have to go outside the thing, because otherwise we all just sit here with books and you all sit there with pots and we don't ever, you know, we have to, we have to all learn to love each other's disciplines. So I would love to invite you. To, yes, please. Oh, uh, should I play hard to get? <laughs> <laughs> should I act casual? Hang on a second. Let me do this again. Oh, really? Let me just check my diary. <laughs> so I would love to invite you on the Fines family estate, obviously. Uh, the 13th century Broughton Castle is adjacent. But more importantly, we have an 80-meter-long lump of the British classical history in front of us. Being time team, we don't know what its secrets reveal. My Greek archaeologist friends talk about giving birth to the past and that wow. the past is pulled out like a baby screaming and shouting into the oxygenated air. And while you're there, I would hope that things will come out that will be the first time anybody's seen it since the Romans handled it. Yes, please. I would love to. So very nice to talk to you. Thank you for joining us on, on Time Team. And your book, um, Pandora's Jar, which I've enjoyed reading a lot, particularly the modern examples. It's not Thanks. about the past. We pick up that stuff and it drives new creativity in the present. So lovely to hear it. And thank you for your, your time with Time Team. Oh, thanks for having me. I've had a lovely time.
We can't do any of this work without you. So please subscribe, back us on Patreon, and make sure that Time Team comes back again.